Okay, we return to our series um, this morning on the book of 1 Peter. And if you are a guest here this morning, I just want to let you know that over the past number of months, for a number of months now, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter, and I really think for your sake as well as all the members here, um, to give you a bit of a heads up, we're going to be following this series, I'm sure, all the way through the summer, maybe even a bit into the fall because we want to cover most of the aspects of this book that um, really, as, as many of you have heard here, focuses on a very fine tension in the Christian life of, of knowing that the Lord has placed us in this world and for the sake of of the world to provide gospel witness to it. Uh, at the same time, we know that we're to be a culture, cultural people, that we're not to be exactly like the world. And you can sense that's, a, that's not only a fine balance to uphold, but there's a, there's a kind of a fine tension here. Because you don't want to go too far in this direction, you want to go too far in this direction. And if you were here uh, during uh, the last uh, segment of this series, a couple of weeks ago, you know that I talked about what's being called dual citizens. It means that as Christians, we are citizens of heaven in that we belong to Jesus, and we know that heaven is our final destination, ultimately the new creation, and yet we're not there yet. Right now, we're called to live in this world as those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And again, that's not always easy. There is a tension there. And that, that tension affects the way that we live in the world and how we relate to individuals in the world, particularly those who are in authority, whether they be in government, uh, whether it be in the context of our relationships within marriage, in education, in the classroom, if you're in the military, how we relate to our officers, and as we're going to see this morning, how you and I are to function on the job, in the, in the workplace, and that's the focus of the Apostle Peter here. So I want to draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we begin uh, reading at verse 18, picking up where we left off last time, and reading to the end of the chapter. All right, let's uh, listen to the word of the Lord, and if you have a Bible or device with you, or you can look at the screen above my head, you can follow along with your eyes as well. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps." He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. For himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. If you were uh, listening carefully, but also praying along with uh, Brother John as he was um, offering the congregational prayer, you'll remember that he uh, mentioned the name of Tim Keller, 
Some of you, maybe this is the first time you ever heard that name. For, I think, a number of us, maybe we have at least heard that name, or we know quite a bit of a background of a pastor and teacher and theologian who was very influential in the city uh, of, well, New York City, and particularly downtown Manhattan. And I'm not going to go into the whole background of Tim Keller, although I am going to mention him, I wouldn't say extensively, but I'm going to give a few details about him and his ministry as a demonstration of the grace of God working through him. But he, he died this past week, and there was another man, I don't know if you know this, but another man who was very influential uh, in the church and in Presbyterian Reformed circles. His name was Harry Reeder. And as a number of you know, um, I'm on the, uh, well, I just finished uh, a couple terms on the Mid-America Seminary Board, uh, Reform Seminary, and Harry Reeder was um, someone who was going to speak at a conference that was hosted by the seminary in the fall. Well, he's not going to be able to make it because he died tragically within 24 hours, I think, of Tim Keller in a, in a tragic and very unexpected uh, car accident, and I will mention him next week as well. Um, but I, back to Keller, I remember one of Keller's famous sayings was this. He said, the gospel, and it was very simple, he said, the gospel changes everything. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ changes everything. In other words, what he's really saying, it just doesn't change my relationship with God because of the reconciliation that we have with God through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone but the gospel changes and is designed to do this, to change every part of our lives, to transform every part of our lives, to transform our marriages, and to transform how we function in the classroom, and how, how, we, how we function in the military, how we just simply overall function our lives in the world, and as we're going to see this morning, how you and I function on the job site, in the, uh, the workplace, actually. And, um, you know, it's, it's rather interesting. I, I want to draw your attention to uh, verse 18. You can just look at the screen or if you have a Bible with you. I want to draw your attention at, at the very outset here uh, because this, this first verse is very important. It reads like this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Which, for a person who is either not a Christian or starting to learn the Bible for the first time, when they read something like that, it kind of rocks their world. Because oftentimes you will find, oftentimes you'll find in the workplace, it's less than ideal. There are tensions that go on with your employer. There are tensions that go on with your fellow employees. There's something in your job that's not going well. You're not satisfied. Maybe the boss is too demanding. Maybe you're putting in too many hours. Maybe you got the job, but you're just not all that satisfied with it, and, and on and on that goes. And then the text says here that, that we are to to treat our masters, and I know that here it says servants and masters, but we could easily apply this because we don't have that kind of institution of slavery today, officially. But we can, and oftentimes what pastors will do is they will uh, draw attention to something akin, something similar to the master-servant relationship, and that's the employer-employee relationship. And for, for a person reading the Bible for a first time, it kind of hits them where it says that we are to to be subject to our masters or employers when they're good and gentle. In other words, when they're kind to us and things are going well on the jab site. But 
But we are also to be respectful and honoring to those in authority over us, not just on the job site, when they are unjust. Now, a form of that word unjust or, or a lack of justice is found three times in this passage. And it's kind of interesting that when you go back to the original language in verse 18, the first time that word unjust is used, it's, it's different than the other times that that word unjust is used. And the word in the original language for unjust is, a, is the word scoliose, from which we get our medical term of uh, uh, scoliosis. I don't know if you know what scoliosis is, but, um, and, but maybe you do because you're suffering from it. Uh, scoliosis is a curvature of the spine. And if you have it, it doesn't affect you so much when you're younger, but as you get older, the, the effects start to be greater. And so basically what, what Peter is saying here is that as, as Christians, and maybe you can identify with this because you are experiencing this in your own job, that, that Peter is saying you're to, you're to subject yourself, and I'll get to that word in just a moment, but he says you're to subject yourself to your, to your employer, yes, when he's good toward you, but also when he's curved or if he's crooked, and that could mean unethical. It could mean that he's simply not being fair and he's not treating you well. But he's saying even in those situations, you're not to stick it to the man. Or to say like that old country singer from 1977, Johnny Paycheck. For those of you older, you may remember that country tune where the constant refrain of the song is, take this job and shove it. I ain't taking this no more, right? That kind of attitude that you find in the world is not the attitude that you and I are to have in the, the job place. Why is that? Why is that? We're going to look at that. We're going to look at that. Now, I want to draw your attention here because there's going to be some uh, practical matters to the sermon, but there's going to be some very scriptural and theological matters that I want to draw your attention to. And the, the theological matter that I want to get our attention, draw our attention to is the fact that this whole matter of you and I being subject to authority is all a part of this letter and the context. For instance... And you're not going to be able to see this on the screen. This is why I always encourage you to take your Bibles or your devices and follow along with that. If you take a look at chapter 2, verse 13, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. There is our calling as Christians to be, there's that word subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or governors sent by him. So last time, you remember, we were, we were, we saw that we were called to show respect and honor to governing authorities, government officials, even when that's not easy for us to do, even when they make decisions that we think are, well, either unlawful or improper. Still, we are called to generally submit, submit ourselves, subject ourselves to governing authorities. Then when you go on, and we're going to look at this in a couple of weeks, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives are to be subject to their own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So there is a, there's that word subject or submit. Wives are to submit to their husbands. We see that also in Ephesians chapter 5, which when people are first familiarizing themselves with the Bible, it's like, what is that all about? Right? Does it mean that the husbands get to do with this with their wives? Right? Isn't that what the Christians teach? And that's not what the text is saying. And we'll look at that next week, uh, in a couple of weeks. Now we come to that word subject again. Servants be subject to your masters or employees be subject to your employers, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Okay. 
What does it mean to subject yourself to another person? Or in this case, what does it mean to subject uh, an employee to subject himself to his uh, boss or his superior or his supervisor? Uh, three things about the word subject. There's a lot of things, but for the sake of time, I'll list just three. The word subject is a, it's a form of the word in the original language, and it sounds like this, hupa tasso, hupa tasso. Hupa means under, and tasso means to subject or to arrange. So when you subject yourself to another person, you're not worshiping that person, but what you're doing is you're willingly placing yourself or arranging yourself under the authority of that person. You're recognizing that, and you're honoring that. You're submitting to that, which is is not easy for any of us. Right? It's not part of our nature to want to subject ourselves to another person, especially in this Western culture where it's all about the individual and individual rights. How many times don't we hear that? It's all about individual rights. And the Bible says, no, no, it's not about individual rights. It's about honoring Christ above all and loving our neighbor as ourselves, And not asserting ourselves first. But the fundamental truth of the Bible is you die to yourself so that you can come alive and submit yourself to Christ and submit yourself to others. That's a, that's a pretty different worldview, isn't it, that we find in the world around us. That's what it means to be a countercultural person, countercultural Christian. Okay? But anyway, to subject means to arrange or place yourself under the authority of another. Secondly, the word subject carries with it not only the idea of respect and honoring that other person, but it carries with it the idea of grace. If you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is, the text says, a gracious thing before God. What is grace? Grace is more than just a theological concept for us. When God bestows His grace upon us, what He's doing is bestowing love and pleasure and honor upon those who do not fundamentally even deserve that. And that's the way that we are to respect those in authority over us. We are to be, have a gracious disposition toward them. In other words, we're to show them favor, even if we feel that they don't deserve it. It's because of their position. And they're in that position, by the way, it's because the Lord has placed them in the position, because He's the sovereign God. He establishes everything. Third thing, finally, that we learn about the word subject or subjection is that this is not only a countercultural attitude that we have as Christians. But it is, it is a Christ-like thing. And that's the major point of this passage, it's a Christ-like thing. So when we subject ourselves to others, even though they are, are unfair to us, or maybe even abusive, actually we're following the example of Christ. I'm going to get to that and read a portion from the text to substantiate that. But for now, what's kind of interesting is this whole relationship between master-servant or employer-employee is not just found here in the passage that we're dealing with this morning, but it's found elsewhere in the Bible, a number of places. Let me give you three. Could you put that on there, the uh, AV? All right. Um, Let all who are under a yoke, it comes from the book of 1 Timothy, let all who are under a yoke as servants regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God may not be reviled. The Lord himself tells us we are to respect those in authority over us. 
When we don't do that, we are actually reviling, we're blaspheming the name of the Lord. But when we do do that, as hard as that is, we're actually honoring the name of the Lord. Isn't that what we want to do? Secondly, from the book of uh, Titus, servants are to be submissive to their masters or in subjection to their masters. Notice, in everything. They are to be pleasing and not argumentative. Now, you know, does that, does that mean when you get slapped upside the head, let's say by your employer, so to speak, that you just say, well, I guess I'm going to take it, and then you adopt this kind of passive attitude? That's not what the Bible is saying. You know, you can talk to your employer, or you can talk to fellow employees about the situation, but you're not to engage in name-calling, not to engage in gossip, you're not to stick it to the man, not to do anything like that. There are recourses to follow, Right? But even when those recourses don't follow and they don't work out, doesn't mean that we get to do what we want. We want to honor the Lord and we're not to be argumentative. We're not to steal from our employers, but showing good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. Um, I have a brother-in-law who runs a pool business in Phoenix. And uh, he, I remember him saying that he had a, he had, there's a story of a, a man who was working with him and he realized that some of the chemicals um, that were very costly to put in pools that the employers would use, one of his, one of his employees was actually stealing. He thought, he thought that maybe one of his employees was stealing from him, so he had cameras set up. He caught the guy red-handed. And, you know, we're not supposed to do that as Christians. You don't steal from your employer. Even though you may not like them, it doesn't give you the right to steal from your, from your employer or steal from the job place. I think of a worker like that where upon reading the scriptures for the first time, he seals, oh, I'm not supposed to steal. Gospel changes everything, right? But the servant is to show good faith so that in everything he may adorn the doctrine of God. Then finally this, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Servants, obey your masters with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, just when your boss is looking. Not when he's just watching you. But doing when he's not watching you. Do it as a servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, knowing that whatever good you do, you will receive back from the Lord. Now, employers, masters, do the same thing to them, to your employees, and do not threaten them, knowing that their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Huh. Now, that's not an easy thing, is it? It's, 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 it's easy, easy to do well on the job site when your boss is good or when your superior supervisor is good, but when he's not, that's, that's hard. And yet, we are to honor and respect those in authority. Do you ever realize that the Bible oftentimes requires us to do the hard thing? <laughs> Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. <laughs> Respect, honor, even when they're unjust. Why are we supposed to do this anyway? I mean, I know that's what the Bible says, but ultimately, why are we to, to do the countercultural thing and to respect those in authority over us? And, and we could say it's in the workplace, but you could say in the classroom. Let's say you're a kid in the class. You really don't like your teacher. Maybe your, maybe your teacher's grumpy or gripey or what have you, and you don't really respect your teacher. Yet the Bible says, nonetheless, pray to the Lord. Pray for your instructor. Love on them. Respect them. That's the hard thing. 
We could apply it to a lot of different areas. Why do we do that? To tell you why? It's because it's the Jesus thing to do. It's because the example that Christ gives us. Take a look at verses 21 through 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Simple point. Look to him. Look to Jesus. As the epitome of one who suffered unjustly. And who is the epitome of one who did not lash out under unjust authority. For instance, Jesus suffered greatly, did he not, at the hands of the Pharisees who just hated him. Jesus suffered under um, the rule of Pontius Pilate when he was on trial. Jesus suffered at the hands of Roman soldiers who beat him and slapped him and put a crown of thorns on his head. Is Jesus who suffered at the hands of his own people that as he hung on the cross, the people mocked him and rejected him as their own Messiah? Why did these people treat Jesus in this way? You know what the Bible says? It's because Jesus was righteous and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes, they did not like Jesus, yes, because he was righteous and also because they were envious of him. Because as long as people were following him, they were not following them. Jesus understood all of this. Jesus understood that, that he was not being treated fairly. And did he react? And did he revile them? Did Jesus speak down upon them? There are times when he called them to account, but even in that, there was respect. What does the Bible say when Jesus was suffering? He says, as a lamb is led to the slaughter, silently so, so too, he did not open up his mouth. And when you think when Jesus was hanging on the cross and suffering greatly, Jesus didn't pray to his Father, Father, rain down. Fire and brimstone upon them, destroy them, consume them, O God, because of what they are doing to me. He did not do that. Yet what does the Bible say? Peter puts it very simply. He, Jesus entrusted himself to his Father. You know what that means? It, means? it means that he handed himself over to his Father and realized that it was not up to him to bring retribution and vengeance Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He handed himself over to Father as if to say, Father, you know, you know what is happening here. And I trust that retribution in time will come from your hand. In the meantime, O oh God, and here's where you see the heart of Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they, what they do. And in the situations that we face as Christians, we're not called to abject passivity where we can never talk to our employer, we can never talk to our employees. But in the final analysis, if things are not going well for us, we have the opportunity of not only prayer, but we have the opportunity to hand things over to my Father 
and, 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 and say to the Father, Father, I know you know my situation like, Christ, like you knew Christ's situation, your son's situation. And I know that whatever is unfair now, justice will come about in the end. In your time. And, and in your way. The Lord knows our situations. And he calls us to honor and respect. He calls us to do the hard thing. And, and why, again, why are we to do this? Because, my friends, it's because it pleases God. And um, we are to do it because our text calls us to do it. We are to do it because it's the way of Jesus himself. And, and it's because when we do it, when we act in this countercultural way toward our employer or our fellow employees or supervisors, superiors, or what have you, and it's, it's something that Peter brings out in the rest of this book. When we do that, when we act counterculturally and respectfully, this actually garners the attention of those around us. And they say, you don't, you don't, you don't talk the way the other employees talk. And you don't badmouth the other way the employees badmouth. And you don't, you don't have the kind of attitude, stick it to the man, that a lot of people have. What is it about you? Why do you, why do you act in that way? And that should be our ultimate aim, that as we do that, and we act in that different way, as hard as it is, that people will actually be, be quietly drawn to the gospel and, and, and drawn to Christ. Let me give you an example of that. Again, John uh, prayed um, in connection with the Keller family. I'll give you an example from Keller's ministry briefly. Uh, Keller's working in Manhattan, and there was a, a woman that he knew who uh, made a decision, as, and she was in part of a large corporation in Manhattan, and she made a decision that was a really bad decision. And it really had the, uh, the opportunity for the employer to let her go. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if you've been following the whole thing with the, the Budweiser Beer Corporation and the, the young woman who made some decisions for the company regarding uh, this, uh, I forget his first name, but Mulvaney, you know. It's just, it was just a really, uh, on a number of different levels, a really bad and decision. But anyway, and she made a decision, something like that, that, that really had the potential of costing her job. Well, anyway, um, she had a supervisor, and the supervisor went to the woman's employer and his employer, and he said, listen, um, this all happened on my watch, he said, and by this way, this man was a, a member of Keller's Church. He said, this all happened, he said to his employer, this all happened on my watch as a supervisor. She made a bad decision, and I will, I will take the wraps for this. An employer didn't like it, but he said, okay. And it cost this man deeply in terms of the clout that he had with the company. And um, this woman heard about this, and she pressed her supervisor and said, why, why did you do that? And he wouldn't tell her. And, he, and she kept pressing him over time, till finally he gave in, and this is what he said. He said, you need to know that I am a Christian. And as a Christian, Jesus took 
all of the wrongdoing that I have ever committed. And he paid for the penalty of that wrongdoing on the cross. That wrongdoing is known as sin. And he paid for my sin. And because he did that, because he took the blame, not only am I forgiven, but I'm right standing with my ultimate employer. I'm I'm in right standing with my God in heaven. And that's why I did it for you, because I wanted to be an imitator of Christ. And she was really, she didn't know what to do at first, and she was very much taken aback. And then uh, Tim Keller, he goes on um, to write this. Can you put the quote on there? He said this, The supervisor's behavior was shaped by the grace of the gospel, and it made his behavior attractive and strikingly different from that of the others. This lack of self-interest and ruthlessness on the part of her supervisor was life-transforming because she eventually started attending Redeemer. I mean, this, 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 this sharing of the gospel with this woman about Jesus was preceded by an act of self-sacrifice for the sake of the woman. And she was so taken aback by that act and by his words that she said, I want something of that. And that has to, that has to be our desire in, in our workplace as well. That when, when we believe that the gospel changes everything, that it just doesn't put us in a right relationship with God, but that as a result of that, God calls us to live holy and beautiful lives, that's when we get the gospel. And that's where we start to have an effect in the world. Peter puts it like this in this passage. He bore our sin in his body, that's Jesus, on the tree, on the cross, so that we might actually die to sin and live unto righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. So what is Peter saying? Peter's saying Jesus died so that we might live. But more than that, Jesus was wounded on the cross. Those nails were driven into his hands and his feet and the spear into his side. He's wounded so that you and I, through faith, might be healed. And that healing is not only in reference to the healed relationship now that we have with God because we're reconciled to him through faith in Jesus, but that healing is designed to affect every part of our lives including the way that we act in the workplace. So in the end, let's remember this. Unjust and even cruel masters can exist in many different places and contexts. If you're enlisted, you can have a cruel officer. If you're a child in school, grade school, high school, you may have a teacher you don't like. Um, We looked at this a couple weeks ago. We have government officials that it's really, really hard to honor respect. There are some that we really do respect, and there's some some that we don't respect at all. Maybe it's even including our prime minister. You know, and and that's hard. Uh, Difficult masters and poor decision-making people are in places, all authority around us, sometimes including the workplace. If you have an employer and you're employed and you have a great employer, praise God for that. Thank him for that. But if you find yourself in an unpleasant situation, in a less than ideal situation, pray, interact with your superiors. Maybe your situation will change. Maybe not. But ultimately, my friends, let us all, whoever is in authority over us, let us all entrust ourselves to Jesus, remembering the unjust way that he was treated, and ultimately resting in this fact,
that while others around us may treat us cruelly or unfairly, we have always a merciful and gracious master who has ascended in heaven and he knows our situations even more than we do. So with that in mind, we need to go to him and we're going to ask him to bless us in this world as we are all under some kind of supervisory authority and to ask that by means of our attitudes and the way we live our lives before those in authority, we may actually display the beauty of the gospel and the Holy Spirit in us. So let's, um, let's pray for that now. Heavenly Father, um, it's true, Lord, the gospel does change everything in our lives, including, as we saw this morning, the way that we're to function in the workplace. Father, um, apart from the workplace, Lord, we are all subject to authorities. Lord, we, we, we admit here this morning that every one of us, everyone, is subject to some kind of authority, whether, whether it be in government, uh, well, whether it be in this church, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in school. Father, we pray for, specifically for these things. We pray, oh God, that we may look to Jesus, not only as our Redeemer, but as our example as to a submissive attitude, especially in times when things are unfair. And secondly, we pray, O oh God, that you will give us your spirit, the one who lives in us and around us, to form in us the kind of attitude of Jesus Christ. Then finally, Father, we pray that as we carry out our submissive attitudes in this world, before those in authority over us. We pray, O oh Lord, that this may, and only you can bring this out, this would attract those around us to the gospel, like that woman in New York City, so that people may come under the headship and the love and the mastery of Jesus Christ, that they may sit, submit their lives to him and come to a place like pathway or other gospel-centered churches. So not only would they be saved and reconciled to you and join the church of Jesus Christ, but so that they too can live for your glory and be a beautiful and attractive witness to those around them for the furtherance of your church, O oh God, and for the furtherance of your kingdom. And so, Father, we pray for these things, and we trust, O oh Lord, that you will answer this prayer and many other prayers that we offer you because we believe, O oh God, that you hear us and you promise to answer us in Jesus Christ, in whom every request is yes and amen in him. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.